This is an ABC podcast. It's 2004, and a fresh-faced college student named Mark Zuckerberg has just stumped up for a chat on CNBC about his new online venture. Mark, if somebody was to put the question to you about the, the magnitude of what you think you've launched, how big do you think your product or your service is? Well, it's impossible to tell. When we first launched, we were hoping for, you know, maybe 400, 500 people. And now we're at 100,000 people, so who knows where we're going next. We're hoping to have many more universities by the fall, hopefully over 100 or 200. And from there, we're going to launch a bunch of site applications, which should keep people coming back to the site and maybe could make something cool. What is the Facebook exactly? It's an online directory that connects people through universities and colleges through their social networks there. You sign on, you make a profile about yourself by answering some questions, entering some information such as your concentration or major at school, what books you like, movies, and most importantly, who your friends are. 14 years later, Facebook now has so many users the number is usually just rounded off at more than 2 billion. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Today, three perspectives on understanding the true nature of Facebook and other content platforms. For our society to keep moving forward, we have a generational challenge to not only create new jobs, but create a renewed sense of purpose. Mark Zuckerberg is an idealist, and he saw digital technology from early on as having the potential to connect people in such a consistent and friction-free way that they might actually treat each other better. And that ideology, that naive ideology, remains at the core of Mark Zuckerberg's worldview. But along the way, he and his company made a series of choices that ended up with the Facebook we know now. Full-on nationalization is obviously a totally extreme solution, but in most you know, Western countries, there's a whole host of kind of legal frameworks that you can use with companies that provide something close to a public service. It says something about the general community disquiet with online content platforms that anyone would speak of nationalising Facebook. That was Max Reed from New York Magazine, by the way. But even some on the extreme right are talking the same language. Here's a recent question from host Laura Ingram on Fox News. There's a thought that given the enormity of these corporations, this is the public square today. This is what the equivalent of what you know we used to see in the old town square with people with a bullhorn. Uh, and so could, could there be a movement to treat them more like public utilities? So they have some quasi uh, you know, government oversight of these uh, entities or that, would that open up a total can of worms perhaps in the other direction at some point? Facebook isn't the only social media platform facing questions about its power and its social responsibilities. What makes it special, though, is its size and the fact that the Zuckerberg empire also includes ownership of WhatsApp and Instagram. Siva Vardianathan is a professor of media studies at the University of Virginia. His new book is called Anti-Social Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. 
To understand Facebook's future, he says, you have to understand the delusions of its past. So, the, you know, the people at the head of Facebook, Zuckerberg included, saw their success, their financial success, their popularity as affirmation for their idealistic vision of what they were doing. They were convinced, and until recently, they remained convinced, that everything Facebook did improved the species, made us get along better, helped us enhance our lives in important ways. They figured that what was good for Facebook was good for the world, and therefore they could applaud themselves. And they didn't have to think of themselves as as greedy capitalists because, you know, yeah, the money came, but the money wasn't their motivation. Now, that's very easy to say when one has money, and they have a lot of money, and it doesn't seem to be stopping, right? So, But sincerely, they really have felt, and Zuckerberg has said this a number of times, that the more time you spend on Facebook, the better it is for the world. The more people who use Facebook for more things, more reasons in the world, the better off everyone will be. He believes he is building a global community. I remember that night I launched Facebook from that little dorm in Kirkland House. I went to Noakes with my friend KX. I remember telling him clearly that I was excited to help connect the Harvard community, but one day someone would connect the whole world. The thing is, it never even occurred to me that that someone might be us. We were just college kids. We didn't know anything about that. There were all these great big technology companies with all these resources, and I just assumed one of them would do it. But this idea was so clear to us that all people want to connect. So we just kept working on it day after day after day. So Zuckerberg and Facebook's own sense of manifest destiny is what made it so vulnerable to being co-opted and misused in recent years by Russian propagandists, racists and extremists, etc. One crucial inflection point, according to Professor Vardianathan, was the so-called Arab Spring in 2010. It was definitely a high public relations moment. What we had in the wake of that was a, a sort of naive assumption that social media played a strong role in those uprisings when it really did not. You know, the fact was by 2011, Facebook in, had been available in Arabic for about a year. There were a few thousand Facebook users in Cairo and Tunis. There were uprisings in places where Facebook was not used very much, like Morocco and Bahrain and Lebanon and Syria. But in the wake of that, we got this myth that this was the social media revolution at work. And so in the time after that, 2011 and 12, 2012, Google releases its initial public offering of stock and its reputation could not be higher. And people are convinced, and the US State Department is telling people that Facebook is part of the process of democratizing the world, connecting the world, liberating the world. It just wasn't true. What it did teach, because the US State Department was saying all this, it taught every authoritarian and nationalist leader in the world that they should master Facebook. They quickly realized how easy Facebook is to hijack and how easy it is to use the very attributes of Facebook, their powerful advertising system, their algorithm that amplifies content that is extreme and the fact that they have all of these users, right? Every authoritarian and nationalist leader said, oh my gosh, this is a dream come true. We can leverage those factors to enhance our movements to spread bigotry, hatred, and call for violence. And having made that omelette, says Siva Vardianathan, trying to unscramble it is going to be difficult indeed, because the flaw at the core of the Facebook model is the very thing that's made it so successful with users and advertisers. 
Essentially, its algorithms prioritise engagement over content. So these three attributes, 2.2 billion people, that means Facebook is too big to govern. It is ungovernable because it's there are too many humans expressing themselves constantly in constantly creative ways. So there's no way to police that. The algorithms that do that exact thing, favor engagement, amplify extreme comments that generate strong emotions, and an advertising system that so precisely targets that very content at vulnerable people, right? That combination of three things, those three things are what makes Facebook, Facebook. So the problem with Facebook is Facebook, which is why these cosmetic changes, these cosmetic reforms that Mark Zuckerberg keeps promising ultimately won't fix the problem. Now, Facebook would actually say that they're not involved in social engineering, but Mm. you and others would say that social engineering, again, is at the heart of the way in which they operate. It's It's at the heart of the business plan. That's right. And, and if you look at Zuckerberg's speeches and videos and interviews, as I have, I've gone through hundreds of them, hundreds of hours of them. And in every case, he uses the language of social engineering. He talks about building community. He talks about connecting the world the way that a, a bridge connects two sides of a river, right? All of these verbs are engineering verbs. He wants to forge a different sense for humanity, one that reflects his own cosmopolitan vision of the world, one that I happen to share in an idealistic sense, but I've read enough history and philosophy and I've read the classics and he's a college dropout. So he is not educated enough to recognize the cruelty that human beings are capable of. And therefore, he did not design his system with any sort of breaks or any sort of fail-safe that that acknowledged the extent to which his system could be hijacked and manipulated by the very forces who oppose everything he believes in. Another inflection point that you identify with the, the development of Facebook over the years was when it started to see itself as a news source as more than just, you know, a social network connecting. What, what, what was the problem there? Right. Well, as soon as they created, as soon as Facebook created a news feed and allowed us to share content from around the web on it, people started sharing news or simulations of news. Facebook offered us as individuals a fantastic way to express our identity through our favorite issues, our favorite people, our favorite opinions, and also the things we despise, right? So so each of us starts acting as a news editor or publisher on our own Facebook pages, thus influencing all of our friends' news feeds. He thinks it's important that people learn about the world through Facebook. But ultimately, Facebook became a cesspool of disagreement and discord, largely because We're going to fight with each other when we post issues about the world. But Facebook's also not designed for deep thought. It's designed for that instant gratification and the instant comment and the instant indignation. And as we train ourselves to be indignant 50, 100 times a day, it becomes really hard to calm down and think and have a deep, deliberative conversation with someone with whom we disagree. Now, you're critical of the way Facebook operates but you're not critical of Mark Zuckerberg's original intentions or indeed his contemporary intentions. Mm. You think he's actually well-minded. Yeah, um, but I have a problem with being, with being well-minded, actually. But, but how, I, I almost wish he were a more you know, mean, greedy capitalist. If he were a mean, greedy capitalist, then he might have 
looked out for his corporate reputation in a much more cynical way. He might have recognized that there are other people in the world who are as low-minded as he is, but he's not, right? So he didn't even recognize that animal in the wild. And he didn't anticipate all of these problems. The other thing that really irks me is this notion that companies take it as their role to improve the world. Like who asked them to shape the world in their own vision, right? In the, like Mark Zuckerberg has a vision for the world and a sense of justice, right? Again, I might share that. I'm an American of cosmopolitan bend. But again, the difference is that he has decided to try to shape the world according to his own vision. And that's very apolitical. That notion that companies should do that rather than communities, states, societies, I, I find that very troubling. Max Reed, a senior editor for New York Magazine, believes one of the difficulties we have in understanding how best to deal with the supranational, seemingly all-powerful platform that is Facebook is that we struggle to define the nature of its power. And Zuckerberg's soaring rhetoric just tends to blur things. They know that they resemble a liberal democracy in enough ways, you know, that they can sort of talk about themselves in the same terms that that government of Australia or the government of the U.S. might talk about themselves, and that we kind of buy it because we can see in the same way that when you go on Facebook, you can see a little bit of a newspaper in Facebook. You can also see a little bit of a state in Facebook, a little bit of a sort of country that you are, you know, entering and participating in when you sign into Facebook. But of course, it's not a liberal democracy. And if you think about it for even five seconds, of course not. You know, it has a CEO, it has a profit motive, it has shareholders, it's a corporation. And you know, so in the context of state metaphors, it's much closer to a dictatorship than it is to a constitutional liberal democracy. Max Reed recently penned an article called Does Facebook Need a Constitution? Companies like Facebook, Apple, Google and Amazon, he mused, now have the sort of, quote, supreme and unchallenged sovereign power that once only belonged to nation states. But that's not to say they can't be reined in. You see it even in examples of things like uh, in the 1930s in the U.S. under President Roosevelt, the creation of a whole body of law, of antitrust law, anti-monopoly law, um, you know, financial regulations, financial regulatory reform, all of that being designed to push back against the kind of power that had been developed by the industrial giants and the big banks of the late 19th, early 20th century. So the idea of constitutionalization, to me, in this context, doesn't necessarily mean a written constitution in the manner of a state, but it certainly means figuring out ways that we can counter Facebook's power, that we can give power to the consumers and the users who use Facebook, that we can ensure that Facebook's power is checked in the same way that we imagine sort of an ideal liberal democracy, the way power is checked and shared. So, you know, I love the idea, just from a science fiction point of view, of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg being forced to sign the Magna Carta of Facebook or something like that. But in practice, it could be as simple as serious government regulation that provides rights for users or otherwise kind of pushes back against Facebook's absolute power. You know, we sort of already see some of this the ways in which nation states are trying to push back against these transnational platforms and finding themselves in odd and kind of unprecedented areas. You know, one example that 
is a check in the good column is the way Europe has used its new GDPR privacy law because Europe is such a big market when it passed this new pretty sweeping privacy law it forced a bunch of these major tech companies to make changes across all countries because it just makes more sense for them to have a unified experience they didn't want to have to figure out how to deal with citizens in Europe citizens in the US citizens everywhere but there's a, another side of that which is that for example you know if China makes a set of demands it's whose government holds a very tight control over the internet over how its citizens access it and what kinds of things they can see that if China makes a set of demands about say backdoors into Facebook software or whatever that there's a good chance that we end up seeing those kinds of things transferred over to other countries so you know that's the kind of weird trade-off Facebook itself I would love to see Facebook, and I think it will t certainly undertake some reforms itself, because I think, you know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't like to wake up every day and hear anew that he's ruining the world, that everybody hates him, that he should be doing this, that he should be doing that. He just wants to make money and, and have this big, powerful company. And I think that to the extent that he can move some of those responsibilities off somewhere else without, you know, sort of reducing the profits that Facebook itself is making. He absolutely will. He's speaking of sort of government models. He's spoken about creating some kind of Facebook Supreme Court that would weigh in on content moderation decisions, which would at the very least give some sort of semblance of a judicial apparatus that would allow people to complain and feel as other complaints are being heard. But I think that the, you know, the, the truth is a real constitutionalization process is going to be one in which power has to be taken away from Facebook and put in the hands of its users. I think that would be a, a pretty big blow to Facebook's bottom line, among other things. And I think that that, you know, at that point, even if Mark Zuckerberg had the desire to do this, that he's got, you know, shareholders who he has to please, and they're not going to be happy with the idea of, you know, giving users more control over their data, giving more transparency into the kinds of decisions Facebook makes around algorithms, all the kinds of things that would be useful in making Facebook a little bit less of a, of a black box to us. But what about that notion of nationalisation, the US government taking hold of Facebook and making it a genuine public utility? It's an attractive idea for those worried about the spread of extremist comment. But Max Reed warns that it could backfire, because as a true public square, the extremists would then have a constitutional right to airtime. Also... One thing that's worth always keeping in the back of your head when having this kind of discussion is that Facebook exists the way it does and looks the way it does. I mean, quite literally, when you open it up and there's that feed of posts, you know, the sort of the incentives to share, to create outrageous content, those designs are all based around a profit model from making money from advertising. And if you had a national Facebook, one that was created by the government as a nonprofit that was not intended, it didn't need to sell ads, that didn't need to have high engagement figures, you could have an effectively sort of safer Facebook, one that wasn't so reliant on creating kind of outsized emotions and provoking them. And then, of course, you know, I should say, too, full-on nationalization is obviously a totally extreme solution, but there are, kind, you know, there's a whole, in most, you know, Western countries, there's a whole host of kind of legal frameworks that you can use with companies that provide something close to a public service. You know, I'm thinking about common carrier laws that most postal services have to undergo, which you know, they're required to provide the same service to everybody regardless of origin or, or whatever else. Or there are, you know, sort of public utility laws and frameworks, um, 
where it's still a private company, but it's required to operate in certain ways based on law. The sort of half-joking solution I have, and I'm only half-joking, is that there's no reason that the government couldn't allow Facebook to continue to exist, but it couldn't also build its own kind of social network that to build something new that was gave you everything that we use Facebook for, messaging with people, storing photographs, finding old friends, but did it in a way that was, again, less focused on the sort of awful emotions that tend to push certain kinds of stories viral and make them go all over the place. And that also had like stronger privacy protections and was better to the user in general. And that actually is, it's almost a market solution to this. You know, if it was done right, you have the thing that everybody says they want out of Facebook run by the U.S. government, given the kind of protections they want. And Facebook is then forced, thanks to the market pressure of this new alternative to sort of modify itself and and moderate its behavior. I don't think that's going to happen, but there's a bunch of sort of creative and interesting solutions to this problem. Max Reed from New York Magazine. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. Talton Gillespie is a principal researcher at Microsoft Research and an adjunct associate professor at Cornell. He advocates for a deeper public understanding of the way content platforms make decisions about what is shared and with whom. If we want to make a real difference to our online world, methods of content moderation, he says, need to be made far more explicit. We think a lot about the power of social media platforms, but I think by and large we embraced the promise that those platforms offered, which set moderation aside. It it disavowed it, it described it as irrelevant or a little thing they do on the side or a little thing they do to clean up the mess. And that really downplays how essential it is for how platforms work. And as a user, it's very easy to move through the platforms, never have anything deleted, never run into any trouble, and it feels like an open playground. That's not true for everyone. But I think for the institutions, for the companies themselves, moderation now is a very big and central part of what they do, especially the biggest ones. The smaller ones are still doing it sometimes with a small team of people doing it ad hoc, but the Facebooks and Twitters and Instagrams and YouTubes have enormous resources. And you believe, don't you, that it's at the heart of of many of the problems that we experience with uh, online discourse these days, with bullying, with racism, with all of those, with hate speech, all of that. I do. It's central in the sense that platforms want to offer an open playing field, but also have to produce some sense of coherence and community. And the things we're struggling with, whether it's harassment or hate speech or terrorism, are the public asking questions about what it means to be a platform and what kind of responsibilities platforms have now that they've filled an enormous role in public life. Because the the platforms don't like to talk about moderation in one sense, do they? Because they want people to have the idea that their platform is an open environment, that it's not in any way being controlled. But that's not the case. That's true. I think that they would rather not talk about it because it does sort of take away from that sense of openness. There are other moments where platforms promise protection and safety, and that sense of responsibility has grown over time. But by and large, yes, I think the the heart of the promise that platforms make is that you get to get on that platform, say exactly what you want, find everything you would want, find the community you're looking for. And the idea that they are deleting inappropriate content is just a hard thing to match with that promise. So this is a dilemma for those platforms as well, isn't it? It's difficult for them in this environment, particularly where it's becoming more critical, where people are much more, where there's anger at what's going on in the online world and genuine concern. It's difficult for those platforms now to maintain those two personas, really, isn't it? 
Yes, I think there's always been frustration. If you look back at the early days of some of the platforms that are enormous now, there have always been questions about why they took things down uh, or why they weren't taking things down, why they weren't looking out for users who were being abused or harassed. But those concerns were case-specific, platform-specific. They came up in certain moments and from certain populations that were experiencing those or were running up against a rule. We've definitely seen in the last couple of years a kind of coalescing of that question, a much deeper question, not just did you write the correct rule, did you draw the right line in the sand, but how are you moderating, why are you moderating, what's the work of moderation, what happens if you get it wrong? I think it's coalescing into a, a much bigger consideration. I like to think of it as that we're starting to see an implicit contract with users. We always had a terms of service. That was the contract that platforms provided to us about their rights and responsibilities to us. Now there's a call, and it's ill-formed, and it's still developing, and it's contested, but an idea that there's now an expectation from users about what it is that platforms do. And that's not the terms of service that they provided. It's something different. It does tie into a sense of public obligation. It's one thing if you set up a platform and it's for a thousand users like you or 10,000 users like you, and it's not clear when it shifts over, but there's something very different when you've got a billion users and you're across the globe and it's where news breaks and it's where you know culture changes and it's where connections are made. Something shifts when you step into a, a public role like that. And yet there is still reticence, isn't there, to, to accept the idea of these platforms having a, a, a public obligation. That's right. And I think that has a lot to do with how many of these companies grew up inside of an American media regulatory environment. I think that that position is a very safe one inside the that particular regulatory structure where if you're a private company and you act in good faith, you can step away from a sense of public obligation at the opportune moment. The beginnings of threats of regulatory enforcement are pushing the platforms to change a little bit. But I think that's a particularly useful position inside what U.S. media regulation expects of them. So if we're talking about companies needing to self-regulate or at least reflect on what they can do to make for a better online environment, uh, how central is that notion of transparency, of openness, and particularly being open with the users of the platforms about the way in which moderation occurs? I think we've seen a move towards transparency. The work of content moderation was almost entirely behind the scenes. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that some of the major platforms started putting out transparency reports. These were limited reports that were mostly about what kind of government requests they were getting to remove content. A couple of the platforms have begun to provide more information about how many flags they respond to, how much they take down based on automated software. And I think that's a really good step. Some of that only comes after a crisis, though, doesn't it? Almost always. Yeah, I think these innovations often come after pressure. Doesn't mean that they're bad, but that's not surprising at all. I think they are great, but I think they could do so much more. So to have a quarterly report about how content is removed in a statistical sense is useful, and there are questions that can be asked there. It doesn't go nearly far enough considering that the platforms are constantly gathering data from the users, not just for what they watch and what they like, but what they flag, what they find offensive, and they use that information in the removal process. But so little of that data is available to the user about what's been flagged and under what conditions. So even if you were moving through the platform and encountering content, information about how other users reacted to it could be made available. You'd have to find a way to design it in so that it was useful. But 
in some sense, that's our data. It's data that users have provided for free for years. And yet it's only facing internally. It's only a tool for the platform itself. That would be a level of more radical transparency that I'd love to see. What about sharing between the social media platforms? Yes, they have commercial imperatives, but is there much sharing that goes on over how to deal with the sort of dilemmas that they and we as society face? There's a little bit of informal sharing because this is actually a small population of people that know each other and interact. So that kind of informal professional sharing. But you're right that the platforms don't have official ways to share data with each other, or even more so share bad actors or ways of removing content. It might be nice to know that if I blocked someone on Twitter, I don't also want to run across them on Instagram. It makes sense that the platforms have not explored that avenue. That kind of compatibility would also make it very easy for me to leave a platform and carry my data somewhere else. So I understand the limitations. That might be one of the places where a light touch of regulation to oblige platforms to share some data would be useful. And I think the real value of that is that there are more platforms than just the big seven that we always talk about. So there are smaller platforms that have to deal with this. There are emerging platforms that would really benefit from a framework of moderation expertise and moderation data that would come from that kind of pooling. Tarleton Gillespie from Microsoft Research. His new book is called Custodians of the Internet, Platforms, Content Moderation and Hidden Decisions that Shape Social Media. We also heard today from Max Reed and Siva Vadianathan. Thanks to Karen Savanovitz and Dave White, the production team. I'm Anthony Fennell. You've been listening to Future Tense. Until next time, cheers. <laughs>